my pleasure this morning to introduce to you our speaker, our preacher this morning. It's a man that I've known for the last 39 and a half years of my life, mainly because I call him Dad. But his name is Douglas Patstone, and Douglas is the rector at Christ Church Oceanside, church up in Anuse Bay, which is part of the Anglican Network of Canada. And we're very glad to have you here this morning, Dad. Come on up. I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to tell you what a privilege it is to be here this morning and how grateful I am to be with you in this church. Um, For your pastor, Travis, and the invitation to be here. We have been with you um, on visiting occasions from time to time. I moved here, tried desperately hard to retire about seven years ago. That didn't work got called in to pastor a church up in the new space. So we've been there ever since. Do come down from time to time and sit about here and just love being with you and love being with a church that so emphasizes God's word written, the canon of Holy Scripture, to be taught from and to be formed by and to be preached to from that text means that we are the living and probably the most accurately that we possibly can be, the people of God. Week by week, text by text, faithful preaching, and both Travis and Daniel do it wonderfully for you. So for me to try and step in is quite a privilege indeed. I did do some counting. Just how long ago was it that I started preaching? And the answer is 51 years. So, it's been a little while and started with a society called the Church Army in Canada, like the Salvation Army, only it was an Anglican order at that time, on the streets of Toronto, and standing there preaching, wondering why no one would stop, just because it's February and it's 20 below and there's a wind, you know, what's the matter with them, why won't they stop and listen, and some did, so to have that beginning um, was very encouraging indeed. I am... also feel very privileged to be asked to step into the series that you're doing. That's quite a task, to step into a series. And there's a lot of trust there, and I appreciate that very much. It's a little bit like, well, if you go to someone's place to do some work and you have to confess that you left your wallet behind and you don't have a car, and the host says to you, well, here, take the keys to my Rolls Royce. Just go and pick up your wallet and come back. And you say... A Rolls Royce? I couldn't do that. That's too awesome a car. Oh, no, I trust you implicitly. You go for it. Go back and get your wallet. But you don't understand. I left my wallet in Halifax. (laughs) (laughs) I trust you implicitly. You know, you can go and and get your your, um, wallet. Well, a Rolls Royce, like all motoring cars, like all the beautiful ones that I saw coming down the island, they were all going to the car shows today. Well, they're all sitting there rusting, you know, (laughs) slowly. But that's exactly what they're doing. And as a car guy, that brings sadness and delight. So much more the word of God, which will return to him without being void. Isn't that wonderful? That his word is spoken and it goes out in Jesus Christ and it goes out in the canon of scripture and it's locked into place and it's doing its work and it's going to return to him and to his kingdom and bring us all together as the people of God. 
There's also a wonderful ministry progression that I'm very aware of, and that is that ministers now are working together as team members more than ever before. Your two fellows, for instance, um, do that wonderfully. They relate to other pastors in the area, and we see this more and more. One pastor relates to another. They work as teams. They're complementary in the gospel. Sometimes they have theological differences, but they work together to bring the word of the Lord forward. The story is told of a pastor who was sitting in his office one morning and the phone rang and he picked it up and it was a teenage girl in his, con- in his youth group who said to him, Pastor, my, my mother is very, very ill. Would you please come and pray for her? He said, of course I'll do that. I can be there at 2 o'clock. Will that be all right? Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And with that, she hung up. Then the pastor thought, you know what? She goes to our youth group, but in fact she goes to another church. And then he worried about crossing pastoral lines and visiting somebody else's parishioner. So he phoned her back and he said, I'm sorry your mom's ill, and I'd love to visit her, but your pastor, is he away or is he ill? What's the problem? And she said, oh no, he's here and he's just fine. We just didn't want to expose him to the germs. (laughs) So Sometimes, sometimes there's an engagement there which may have nefarious purposes as well. I think that you must have been listening to wonderful ideas about the parousia in the last few weeks, about Jesus Christ, the second coming, the signs, the timing, the place. I want you to know that from my point of view, my eschatology, as it's called, is very simple. And I like to stay with the simplest possible format because I find that when you do that, then it allows all the scriptures to speak into the storyline. So in keeping with what we're about today, I'm going to be particularly simple and zero in on one point, a one-point sermon. And the point for the sermon would be the whole idea of Jesus returning to be with us as the whole idea of his causing us to be born again and to believe in him in the first place, almost always comes as a wonderful, delightful surprise. And we love surprises. They're very important and very helpful for us. The, um, there's a nice voice. I like that one. <laughs> uh, but I've learned long ago, they're louder than you are. So um, that's... That's helpful, too. In the um, text that we are reading today, there's three little vignettes, and each of them has a very particular place. The first one, in verses 42 through 44, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left, left his house broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Tight little storyline. It makes perfect sense. We hear it and we think, okay, we want to be on guard. We want to prepare. We want to be on watch so that we're ready. Okay, that's nice. Well, then comes the second vignette. The second vignette is brutal. (laughs) I mean, if Jesus was here and grabbed us by the lapel and shook us, I don't think it could be any more arresting than the text is. 
And yet as we give place to the voice of scripture, we find that from time to time we have to hear that which is very, very difficult to hear. It has its place, and we dare not skate over it, or we dare not avoid it, But I have to tell you that in preparation for this sermon, I liked the first bit and the last bit and had real trouble coming to terms with the middle bit. But there it is. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I wonder if they're talking about the church. I wonder if they're talking about our ministry to the church and the church's ministry to the world. I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions, but suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So moving right along to the next point. (laughs) But that point's there, isn't it? We've marked it and noted it, but we do want to move on to the next point. I've chosen for the title for the sermon, In the Twinkling of an Eye, borrowing it from Paul in Corinthians, because I like the imagery. It's so delightful. In the twinkling of an eye, when we pass from this world to the next, when Jesus comes again to be with us, we don't know the day and we don't know the hour. But it's even more than that. It's even more than that because what the text is telling us over and over again is, we're going to be surprised. We love surprises. So if we shift our thinking and if we shift our waiting pattern and instead of looking at all the signs and checking our watches and the calendars, if we take on the idea that we're going to be surprised, then with that comes a wonderful clearness in our relationship, our relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ and in our relationship with God in knowing how it is that we should live. If we're just following rules, then we can do that to a certain extent. If we're trying to relate to him but consider him distant, we can do that, but only to a certain extent. But if there's the element of surprise, if there's the element of nearness of the kingdom of God to our experience, then it's much more delightful, and we find ourselves much more free in our relationship to have um, that expectation in the twinkling of an eye. In our secular conversation, we have an expression that's something like that, but not quite the same. It's good, but not as good as the biblical expression. And the twinkling we use to describe the the eye of the father who is waiting for a child. We try to describe someone's existence before they were born, and we say, he was but a twinkle in his father's eye. And with that, there's a a sameness, which I think is important. And we recognize that as husband and wife come together, and at the moment of conception, a person is created. In the twinkling of an eye, how wonderful and how important that is. How wonderful and important that is. 
when Jesus returns to be with us, that it will be in the twinkling of an eye. I'm old enough now that I get quite angry with some of my fellow Christians. When I walk down the halls of the bookstore and I see time after time and book after book, Jesus is coming soon. As a matter of fact, he's coming on this day and at this time, and then there's a new set of books in a few weeks and another set of books in a few weeks. What part of Jesus' words are they not listening to that no man will know the day or the hour? It's worse still if we watch television Christianity and even worse if we watch internet Christianity because that message is being spoken and voiced over and over again. And there's no reason for it to be. Jesus says he's coming back. Jesus says his encounter with us is going to be an encounter of great and wonderful surprise. So we look forward to that. The whole idea of this passage I want to focus on particularly in the parable of the ten virgins. I think probably because it has to do with a wedding, and we all love weddings. Weddings are great and wonderful. And because this whole story has been brought through the progression that he has given us, particularly in the canon of Matthew at this point, we've just gone through that brutal stage, but then he ends up with this beautiful, positive, supportive image this parable that he gives us of the wedding and the parable of the ten virgins. In this day and age, um, when a wedding was about to take place, there would be a process because the process took place within the context of a tight, well-ordered society. And so it would begin with an engagement. And when the engagement is being made, there would be a settlement between the two fathers. Now, these are the good old days. (laughs) And the two fathers would get together and they would talk about how this would work and what property would go this way and what property would go that way. And then later, there would be a more formal betrothal. And that betrothal would almost be what a wedding is to us in our day and age. And they would go to the house of the bride and there would be a ceremony. And once that betrothal had been offered, they were put into place. They were locked in, if you like. And if somebody wanted to break it, then it was tantamount to a divorce. Or the woman would be considered a widow if she broke that bond. They haven't got together yet as husband and wife, but the betrothal is there, and it stays in place for about a year when they have the marriage. When the marriage takes place, they start from the groom's house, and a procession marches over to the house where the bride lives, And the bride and her attendants, the ten virgins in this case, march with the procession back to the groom's house um, where the wedding takes place. And it takes place at night. So you need the lamps. And these lamps are probably on long poles and they have a, a, a well in them which would hold the oil. And the oil would last for about 15 minutes. So you couldn't become engaged to anybody who would know. Uh, about 15 minutes, so you needed enough oil to get you from one place to the other so that the path was lit the entire way. And as this happens, then we can see how important the oil is. And as this takes place, we can see how important it is for everybody to be ready. And so as the story unfolds and the virgins are waiting, and some of them have thought and prepared properly and brought the oil with them enough to do the job, but the others, the other five, did not. 
And they knew that when they started up their lamps, they would soon burn out. And as they burned out, then they would find themselves in difficulty. Lend us some of yours. We can't do that. If we lend you ours, we won't have enough. And the procession won't make it all the way back. So they're dependent on um, that oil. The interpretation of this passage, I think, is interesting. I've always agreed with, well, Augustine wrote on it in the early 400s, and he said, you know what, I think this is talking about the whole church, the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins, and there are the difference between the Christians who are alert and paying attention and to those Christians who are asleep at the switch. So I've always sort of taken that interpretation myself. Much later, in the 1800s, another scholar by the name of J.C. Ryle My grandfather, Daniel's great-grandfather, would have studied J.C. Ryle. I read him all the time. He's a masterful um, interpreter of Holy Scripture. But he says, no, my interpretation of the text is that five of the virgins are believing Christians and the other five are unbelievers who infiltrate our churches all the time. And we know of other imagery that talks about that sorting out taking place at the second coming. And, uh, and it's a reality that we have to live with. So I'm not sure at this point, now I'm thinking about it, which interpretation is the correct one. They both work, so you can go with either one and, um, and find it helpful. And, um, and that will get us from here to there. Augustine's actual words are, So then, let us understand, dearly beloved, that this parable relates to us all, that is, to the whole church. These five and five virgins are all Christian souls together. And so the interpretation that J.C. Ryle put on it is slightly different. He says, I believe the ten virgins represent the two great classes which compose the visible church of Christ, the converted and the unconverted, the false professors and the real Christians. So there's a bit of a challenge for us to think on that and to interpret it. Down throughout the centuries, by the way, in this passage, those who are given to allegorical allegorical, um, interpretation, they've got meaning for the oil, they've got meaning for the lamps, they've got meaning for the five and five, they've got meanings for absolutely everything. And I think they all work, actually. What does that say? It says to us that God's word speaks so powerfully and effectively that as we, the people of God, read it, yes, we're shaped, we're formed, and our minds are crafted according to the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in our lives. I want to close with a word of exhortation, and it comes back to my profound admiration for this church. Do you know that in this church, you can sing a song without musical accompaniment, and people sing it in parts? That, I have to tell you, is one of the benchmark experiences in my Christian life. Chills go right down my back when I hear you do that. I like the other music, too. We need the both. But um, that's such a gift and such a benchmark of the authenticity of your church and the place that you have here, and that is important. We have a gospel. That gospel is to be claimed. With all the energy and all the imagination, 
with all the vim, vigor, and vitality that we can possibly muster, we want this word, Jesus, to be known. And it's to him that we speak. Dear friends in Christ, you have a church, a wonderful church. As Daniel mentioned, I belong to the Anglican Network. That meant that we had to leave the Anglican Church of Canada because it strayed so far from God's word written and it strayed so far from the lifestyle that God calls us to that we had to leave our building. Didn't think that would matter. The church is the people. I have to tell you, it matters. And your witness here in this place as people drive up and down Shelburne is one that is followed and watched by hundreds and I would guess thousands of people. And it's part of your ministry. And the future that you have that I'm delighted to hear about that you're well aware of, that this area is going to grow building over building and hand over fist, and the fact that you want to be here and ready and willing means that your ministry future is coming to you. So bless you as you keep that, as you keep that place. Having been involved in a lot of evangelism and bringing people to Jesus Christ, I have to tell you that the biggest gap involved in evangelism isn't bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The biggest gap is finding a church home. Where do they go after they've met the Lord? So a church does that. It means that you are a home. A church does that. It means that you are a place of love and security and that you have order. And in our world of ever-increasing confusion, a place of order is more and more needed. So therefore, as we gather together as God's people this day, let us anticipate with great joy what is going to happen in the twinkling of an eye?